I'm going to start this morning in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul is speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Two scriptures I want you to see in this uh, passage or in this chapter. Verse 14 and also verse 16. Paul said, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now notice what he's saying. Paul is saying that one sign of being a child of God is being led by the Holy Ghost. I think, therefore, that we can expand on this a little bit and say without fear of contradiction that every believer, if Paul is speaking by the Holy Ghost, that is, that every believer can and should be led by the Holy Ghost. Now, folks, what could be more important than that? The whole purpose for redemption was so that the Spirit of God would live and abide in you and me. God prophesied in several places in several different ways, several different uh, ways to say it, but saying the same thing each time, that his purpose was to be our God and we would be his people, that he would live in us, that we would no longer have to tell somebody about knowing the Lord because everybody in the body of Christ would know the Lord because he lives on the inside of us. Now, under the old covenant, here's why this is such a big deal. For us, we're used to it, and so we just kind of accept it. But nobody under the old covenant could have the Holy Ghost in them. There were certain people that were anointed or had the Holy Ghost upon them. The hand of the Lord was upon them, the Scripture says, in many ways. But, for example, the king was anointed, and the hand of God was on him, the king of Israel. Prophets who were about the only ministry gifts that there were in operation in the Old Testament, those who spoke for God, the hand of God was upon them, but the Spirit of God wasn't in them either. And then the priests are in the same category. They had an anointing, or the hand of God was upon them, to perform the work and the service of the the temple, the sanctuaries in the temple. But they didn't have the Holy Ghost on the inside of them. The whole purpose of the plan of redemption is for us to be made new creatures in Christ Jesus. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. One translation says a brand new species of being. I like that. John Lake used to call Christians God-men. I like that too. Well, before Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead... There was no such thing as a God-man. That is, after Adam and Eve when they fell. So here the Holy Ghost is saying through Paul that every child of God should be, can be, and should be led by the Spirit of God. Now, is there any way that the Holy Ghost could lead you into something that wouldn't work? Is there any way that the Holy Ghost, being a part of God who's perfect, Any way he could lead you into defeat? Any way whatsoever that his leading or his guidance could result in anything less for us than God's best? It's impossible. That also emphasizes the importance of learning how to be led by the Holy Ghost. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now notice verse 16 He's going to tell us how it, how it often works or how the Holy Ghost leads us. He said the Spirit itself, literally himself, he's not an it. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit 
that we are the children of God. He bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, literally, the words that are used literally means to impress with the idea that something is pushing against something else. Not to, to try to disrupt or anything, just gently nudging. You know how sometimes we'll have our kids by the hand and they want to go one way and we want to go another way. And we'll just kind of pull their arms toward the direction we want them to go or something like that. That's what it means. It means a gentle nudge. A gentle nudge. There was a time earlier in our marriage, early on in our marriage, that Beth tried to control what I said. She still does. She just won't admit it. But we'd be out with somebody, and, and I've always been somebody that was just say things straight, you know, say it like it is. If, if, if things are a certain way, why sugarcoat it or make it seem like it's something else? So there would be things that I would say. We'd be out to dinner or something with somebody else, and there'd be things that I'd say, and, it, and she didn't want me to say it, so she'd kick me under the table. <laughs> now, sometimes it wasn't a kick. Sometimes it was just a nudge with my knee. And I always, said, I always turned and looked at her and said, what? What are you kicking me under the table for? Well, that broke it. It wasn't too many of those times that, that we, we changed. But that's a picture of what bearing witness with our spirit is. It's the Holy Ghost touching us, impressing upon us, nudging us, influencing us. And notice what he influences us to do. He influences us to the knowledge of the fact that we're the sons of God. Now, the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27, says this. It says, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now, where it says the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, candles were candles or lamps. The word literally is lamp. But candles or lamps, little, these little oil lamps uh, that they had in Old Testament times, were the only light that there were that was available for darkness. If you didn't have that lamp, there was no electricity or no light switch to flip to provide lighting for it. And so that light signifies revelation and it signifies direction or guidance. Because without the lamp, you're stumbling around in the dark and you know what happens in those situations. We've all stubbed our toe or done something because we couldn't see well. But when the light illuminates our path, when the light shows us the way to go, then we're able to take sure steps. That's what Proverbs 20, 27 is talking about. It says the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. God's going to lead you through your spirit, in other words. Now, folks, again, my question is, what could be more important than that? Certainly getting saved is the top of the list as far as importance is concerned, but the Holy Ghost even leads you into that. Jesus said, no man can, uh, can receive me except my Father draw him. Well, how does the Holy Ghost draw us? Or how does God draw us? By the Holy Ghost bringing conviction unto us. By the Holy Ghost bringing revelation to our hearts, to our spirits, as to what Jesus has done so that we can receive him and become a part of God's family. So where it says the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, it's saying that God's going to lead you through your spirit. Now look with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter, 20, uh, chapter 5, verse 23. 
Paul did a lot of searching to understand the spirit of man. And I want to share a little bit of it, of it with you this morning. And it's all through the New Testament. Peter says uh, a little bit, very little. John says even less than Peter did. But Paul's letters to the church are full of information about man being a spirit being and how that's supposed to work in our Christian lives and in our Christian walk. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, notice what Paul said. He said, and I pray God would sanctify you wholly. I pray God you're whole, entire, complete, spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul gives us, again, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. These are things the Holy Ghost had taught Paul. He shows how man is made. The three-part nature of man, spirit, soul, and body. And notice he starts with the spirit. He doesn't start with the body. He starts with the most important part and works his way out. Spirit, soul, and body. He talks about, he's, in, he's showing us that man is made in the image of God. John chapter 4, verse 24, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well of Samaria, her question is, where should we worship? The Jews say it's in Mount Zion. The Gentiles say it's other places. This mountain is what she referred to. And Jesus very simply says to her and instructs her about God and how, who God is. He said, God is a spirit. He didn't say God is spirit. He said, God is a spirit. And then he goes on to say, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, a lot of people have different ideas about what worshiping in spirit is all about. We charismatics are real quick to jump on the bandwagon that when we sing in other tongues, that's worshiping in spirit. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Thank God we can do that. He said so himself, right into the Corinthians. He said, I will sing with the spirit. I'll pray with the spirit and I'll sing with the spirit also. So he was well familiar with that. But look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. What Jesus was speaking of in worshiping in spirit, Paul identifies for us by the Holy Ghost. Notice Romans 12, 1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, that you present your bodies. Now you can see right away, he's talking about the difference between the flesh and the spirit. Because if your body was the real you, he would have said, present yourselves. But he says, you present your bodies. So our bodies are a possession of the real us. Did you hear me? Our bodies are the possession of the real us. And the real us is spirit. Well, it would have to be so. If God is a spirit and man's made in the image and likeness of God, he has to be a spirit being. He is of necessity, by definition, a spirit being. So this is what Paul is referring to in, in chapter 12 and verse 1 of the book of Romans. He said, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And notice the next phrase, which is your reasonable service. Most other translations translate that phrase reasonable service 
as worshiping, uh, spiritual worship. Well, let's read it that way. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul identifies what Jesus was telling us, or telling the woman to dwell of Samaria that we have record of. He said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, he's saying, and they that worship him must put their bodies under. They must put their bodies under. They must present their bodies a living sacrifice. This is exactly what Paul said he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. He said, but I keep under my body. Notice again, he's making a distinction between the inward man and the outward man. I, the spirit being, keep my body under. Again, he's calling his body a possession. I keep my body under, lest after I had preached to others, I myself be found a castaway. And Paul gives us a lot of information, really, the struggle that he encountered to come to the understanding of who we are and how things work. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. One thing that's unique about... um, One thing that's unique about the Bible is that it doesn't sugarcoat people's sins or people's difficulty or the problems people have. It's not like things are covered over. But it tells how things really are and who people really were. Let's start reading in Romans chapter 7 in verse... uh, Well, where are we going to start? Let's start in verse 14. Paul said, for we know that the law is spiritual, talking about the law of Moses, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, of course, he's talking about himself before he was born again. But then notice the struggle he talks about. Well, I say before he was born again. It's really before he grew and learned some of these things when he was a young Christian. He said, for that which I do, verse, four, verse 15, for that which I do, I allow not. Now, the, the English is a little tra- uh, confusing in some, the way some things are written. But Paul is talking about the conflict that he's experiencing in his life. He's talking about a desire to keep the word of God, a desire to follow God, a desire to do anything and everything God wants him to do. But then the conflict that he has between his desire to do the right thing and serve God And what his body wants to do instead. And that's what he's talking about when he begins speaking in verse 15. He said, that which I do, I allow not. In other words, he said, what I want to do, what I want to exercise my will toward, is not the things that my body winds up doing. It's good to know Paul had the same struggles that we do, isn't it? Because we can learn from his experience. He said, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. In other words, he's talking about the difference between his will to do the right thing and the pull of his body to do the wrong thing. But what I hate, that's what I do. In other words, he's saying, there are things that are going on in my life that are not the way I want them to be. And he can't understand, or at least at at one point in time, he couldn't understand how these things worked and how he could bring his body under, how he could keep his body presented to the Lord as a living sacrifice so that he could worship in spirit. 
So he said, that things, the things that I hate are the things that I wind up doing. When we fall into sin, we hate the sin that we commit. And that's what brings condemnation to us. The devil's there saying, well, see, you're such a terrible person. You can't even keep the things that God wants you to do. Well, Paul had the same struggle. It's common to all of us. So he said, what I want to do is not what I wind up doing, and the things that I wind up doing are the things that I hate. Verse 16, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Here's the discovery he begins to make, verse 17. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh. Notice he's making a contrast between him and his body or his flesh. For I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing, for the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. He's saying the things I know I should do, I don't seem to have the strength to do. What revelation is he going to come to? Verse 19, again, he's talking about the struggle. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that which I would not, again, his will wants to do one thing and his body wants to do the other. If I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it. Here's a great revelation that he comes to. He said, well, I realized it has to be that since my will is to do the right thing, but my body does the wrong thing, then I, from my heart, am in the right place. It's not me that's doing it, me being the man on the inside. It's not me on the inside that's doing the wrong things. The me on the inside wants to do right always. But the flesh that I inhabit, that's not the real me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. He's saying the very fact that the sin and the experience of sin, I don't want to call it the sin nature because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. But the experience of sin in our flesh is always there and will be always there until Jesus comes back and gives us a redeemed body. That's the evil that's present with him. Verse 22, for I, he's talking about the man on the inside, he's talking about the real him. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man or the inner man. He's talking about his spirit. He's saying the, the I, the real me, is perfect in, and pure before God because I, the man on the inside, always wants to do the right thing. So he's saying you can't judge me by what you see on the outside, which is the way the devil always wants to influence us to judge ourselves. So he's saying you can't judge me by looking on the outside because the outside action is not always the, the, the will of my spirit. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members, in his flesh. Do you realize that Paul is saying that he stumbles and falls and sins and makes mistakes just like you and I do? Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He's talking about his flesh 
and its experience with sin? Well, here's the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the delivering work of God right there. Jesus made provisions for that. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now the word mind there is really a poor translation according to what he's just described. He's not talking about his mind. He's talking about the inner man. But the translators may not have known any more about being spirit beings than the modern day church does. Now, folks, if one of the most important things for us to understand is how to be led by the Holy Ghost, and in order to understand how to be led by the Holy Ghost, we're going to have to know the fact that we're spirit beings. How much of the church world, the present-day church world, doesn't know beings about being spirit beings? And since we just said uh, and read here in the New Testament as well as the Old, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. If God leads us and guides us through our spirits, then if you're the devil, then it would make perfect sense to hide the truth of the fact that we are spirit beings. And the actions, the sinful actions or the mistakes that we make in the flesh don't have any bearing on who the real us is before God. Hide that truth. And you can destroy people's Christian walk through condemnation. Now, Paul said some things, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Paul said a lot of things about the operation of his spirit to the Corinthians. He talked about speaking and praying in other tongues. He said, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. He's making the distinction between the mind and the spirit. So he says, when I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding or my mind is unfruitful. So here's an opportunity for Christians, every Christian, every believer, to receive what God wants us to have, which is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And one of the characteristics of that infilling or baptism of the Holy Ghost is that we can identify ourselves spiritually through praying or speaking in other tongues. So what does the devil do? He stirs up a controversy about tongues. For what purpose? To rob us of not only the knowledge that we need about who we are and what God has done for us, but the power that's produced through speaking or praying in tongues. And I've got to tell you, folks, the devil has done a bang-up job. The amount of teaching in the body of Christ about being a spirit being and the power of the Holy Ghost on the inside of us is almost non-existent. And what would the end result of that be? The church living weak Christian lives. The church living a weak and powerless life, going out into the world saying, come be like us. Accept Jesus into your heart and come be like us. Why, goodness gracious, we can make sure you're weak and powerful, powerless just like we are. What a hook. That's why most evangelism, most successful evangelism, I'll say the word in just a moment. Most successful evangelism is the result of God's power, specifically God's power to heal on display. You look around the world at the people that are really getting folks saved, 
making serious inroads into the lost, you'll find that those are people who believe in the power of God, demonstrate the power of God, and people flood in to a God that's like that. So Paul identifies who we are. I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless into the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit, soul, and body. Now turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter says a little bit about it. And this is the little bit that he speaks of. We'll start in verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of their lives, of the wives, sorry. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Now what he's saying is, and you can well understand this, what he's saying, or the people that he's, that he's writing to, let's go at it from this angle. In the early days of the church, the first generation of the church, there would be tons of people that get saved, husbands or wives that get saved whether their husbands or their spouse did not. Now, hopefully, ideally, it's just a matter of time where the unsaved husband or wife would have influence over the other and demonstrate the benefits of salvation to such a degree that their spouse would want to come in too. But for the most part, 99.999% of the people that got saved, they got saved after they were already married. So it's not a matter of choosing somebody in their case to be, not to be unequally yoked. So Peter is writing to the people, specifically to the wives that have unsaved husbands. And he's saying, don't try to win them by preaching. Let them see your life. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on of apparel. He's saying, don't spend all your time, you Christian wives, don't spend all your time on fixing your hair and wearing jewelry and nice clothes. Now, in times past, the church, certain parts of the church, have preached against jewelry and makeup and fixing your hair and all that kind of stuff. But if that's what Paul's saying, if he's saying it's not right to fix your hair and to wear jewelry, then he's saying it's not right for women or wives to wear clothes either. Now, that would change the face of the church. He's just saying don't put all your efforts there. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with it. And wives, you know as well as I do, there's a lot right with that. I'll just leave things right there. But Paul says, don't let all your efforts be on the outward man. Well, what, is it, what are they supposed to do then? Verse 4, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. <clears throat> Notice how Paul says this. Oh, I'm sorry, Peter says this. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. The hidden man of the heart. He's talking about the spirit. Let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. He's saying that the spirit is this hidden man of the heart. And folks, 99% of the time, you could substitute, whenever the Bible uses the word heart, you could substitute the word spirit there and understand a lot more about what's being said. 
But notice Peter calls him the hidden man of the heart. Who's he hidden from? Well, since he's contrasting the spirit, calling him the hidden man of the heart, with the outward man, then what he's saying is that the hidden man of the heart is hidden unto the five physical senses. So what does that mean when we connect that with the fact that God leads us by our spirit? As many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. That means he's not going to bear witness with our bodies. That means nothing that the five physical senses brings to you, no knowledge that the five physical senses brings to you, can ever be identified as the leading of God. Because he doesn't lead you through your flesh. He leads you through your spirit. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, Jesus said some things about this. Let's start reading in verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at the gate, his gate full of sores. Do you see that word certain? It's used twice. One's talking about the rich man, one's talking about Lazarus. That identifies right away that this cannot be a parable. Parables are stories that begin with something like this. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a tree. Something that's like something else. But when Jesus uses the word certain to identify both the rich man and Lazarus, he's clearly saying, these men are real. This is really how it happened. So Lazarus, the rich man, and Lazarus are both identified Lazarus, verse 21, desiring to be fed from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died. And he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he, talking about the rich man, and in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed. So that they which would pass to you from here cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from where you are. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead... They will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now you can see there's an allusion there to Jesus rising from the dead. But notice something. Both these men die. They don't cease to exist. Spirits cannot cease to exist. Spirits never die from that standpoint. 
And notice that Lazarus is seen and recognized by the rich man. Now, I've got to, maybe we should interject here. Things aren't still the same way that Jesus describes them there. He talks about Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is always also referred to as paradise. The Bible says when Jesus paid the price for sin, it says he led captivity captive and then went into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. Well, that paradise or Abraham's bosom was taken by Jesus into the presence of the Father at his resurrection. In the Old Testament, there are several words that are used for hell, Sheol and Hades most specifically. One is talking about the place of the dead, and the other is talking about Abraham's bosom or paradise. See, under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament saints, Abraham and everybody else included, that were his descendants, those that were, whose hearts were open to the things of the Lord that were looking for the Messiah, but lived before Jesus came. There had to be a holding place for them. They weren't just thrown into the, the place of torment, the lower compartment of hell. There had to be a holding place. Provision was made for them. And you can see that Abraham talks about it being a place of comfort, this paradise or this holding place. But Jesus did away, from that, did away with that holding place. Now the Bible says for the New Testament, following Jesus' resurrection, for those that are born again, it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there's no holding place. Now, I don't know too much about Catholicism, but I'm guessing that that's where they get their idea about purgatory. Now, I don't know where they come up with the idea that if you pray enough or get enough people to pray, then you can get out. Because Jesus did away with it. Now, I could be way off base. I could be completely wrong about that. I just don't know anything about, uh, know much about Catholicism. But I always remember as a kid hearing about this purgatory thing. And everybody was doing their beads and prayers and all that kind of stuff about purgatory. Thank God there's no purgatory. Purgatory seems to be an invention of the mind that refuses to accept the reality that we've been made righteous. But folks, that is a reality. So notice Abraham and Lazarus here, or uh, the rich man and Lazarus here. The rich man recognizes people that he knew on the earth. He saw Lazarus and recognized him. Now his body's buried, but notice he talks about Abraham allowing or commissioning Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water. So there must be water in the spirit realm. And spirit beings must have fingers. They must have tongues. They certainly have memories. Abraham says, remember. So there's a function of the mind in the spirit being too. There would have to be, right? Notice what else is there. Compassion. The rich man remembers his brothers. And he doesn't want them to come to this place of torment. Well, what would cause that other than compassion? So his emotions are operating. Not as a function of his body. But his emotions are still operating too. So spirit beings sound like they look. Like bodies. He saw, which means he has eyes. 
he requests Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue. These are all parts of the body. Now, we know that bodies are not with them here in the rich, for the rich man in hell. It says they buried his body. Well, if man is three parts, spirit, soul, and body, then the spirit of man must be connected to the soul that still exists after physical death. Can you see that? All right, well, then let's shift gears for just a bit. If the spirit and the soul, which we know the Bible identifies, we won't take time to look at it right now. Well, we may take time along the way, but we know that the soul is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. The will can't be a part of the spirit because Paul talked about his spiritual will or what he wanted to do from the inside is not what his body would lead him to do. So the soul has to be the middle ground then between the spirit and the body. The mind, the will, and the emotions. And the soul is the one that tips the balance, the scales, if you will, one way or the other. It either sides in with the influence of the body to do sin or it sides in with the, with the spirit that always wants to do the right thing. Well, we know that fits with what Paul told the church in Rome. We quoted verse 1 of chapter 12. But he talks about in, church, in verse 2 about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of the mind. So he's talking about an operation of the soul there. He says, present your bodies and do something about your mind or your soul. The renewing of the mind will bring you into the knowledge of the perfect will of God. How do we find the perfect will of God? Well, that's easy. We get the word of God down on the inside of our spirit through meditation so that our wills are then empowered or equipped to side in with the real us instead of the body. And you know, another interesting part about this to me is that Paul talks about these things more to the Romans than he does anybody else. And the book of Romans is the only one that he is writing to, the churches that he's writing to, that he didn't start. He's never been to Rome. Well, why didn't he write these things to the Corinthians? He says a few things, as we mentioned, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, about keeping his body under. He wrote to the Corinthians about the exercise of the Spirit through speaking or praying in tongues. He talks about some of those things, but he doesn't go into near the detail that he does with the Romans. Why not? Because when he was there, he preached these things. He taught these things to the churches that he started. This was a part of the revelation that God gave him, an important part of the, the ones that he brought into the family of God and their understanding about who they are and how spiritual things work. But he doesn't know that the church of Rome's heard anything about it much at all. So he goes into much greater detail in his letter to the Romans. He's got to make sure that he gets that information to them, just like if he had come to the, the city of Rome and started the churches himself. So then what place do we have? Well, apparently, just as the head is part of the body, the soul is part of the spirit. The Bible says in one place to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind. 
Now, what's the benefit of knowing these things? What's the benefit of understanding that we're spirit beings? What's the benefit of understanding how we can allow God through the Holy Spirit to guide us? You remember what Jesus said when he was tempted of the devil in Matthew chapter 4? It says that after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, immediately the Holy Ghost led him into the wilderness. Now, what did the Holy Ghost lead him into the wilderness for? Well, the only thing we see in the scripture is where the devil is tempting him. But Jesus wasn't in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted all 40 days by the devil. He went into the wilderness to prepare himself for the ministry that God had for him. And it was only at the end, after he was hungry, after he had fasted for those 40 days, that the devil came to tempt him. Now, folks, we know from what Paul tells us, what the Holy Ghost directed others as well as Paul to to relate to us. We know that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they died spiritually, just as God said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, he's not talking about physical death because they didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. And spiritual death is identified as separation from God. That's why hell is such a tormenting place. Because just as the rich man that we read here in Luke chapter 16, just as the rich man remembered all the things in the world when he was here that he didn't give attention to that he should have and now wishes he would have. That's part of the torment. Part of the torment is that he can't do anything to help his brothers. That they're on the same road as him and will join him soon in that place of torment and there's nothing he can do about it not a thing he can do about it now since death or spiritual death passed on all men as the scripture says Romans 5 12 says it this way wherefore as by one man talking about Adam sin entered the world and death spiritual death by sin and spiritual death passed upon all men that means everybody that's in the earth during the time that Jesus is here, except Jesus, is spiritually dead. Now, do you think the devil would have been able to tell the difference between somebody that's spiritually dead and somebody that's not? Certainly he would have. The devil knew, whether he recognized in the beginning that uh, Jesus was the Messiah or not, we don't know. But he knew there was something different about Jesus He certainly didn't understand the whole of the plan of God because the Bible tells us that if Satan had known that Jesus dying on the cross was a part of God's plan of redemption and that he would be raised again the third day, he never would have crucified Jesus. So clearly he didn't know what the plan of God or the plan of redemption was going to be. Couldn't have. That's why he thought when Jesus died on the cross... He had him. The devil thought he had him. Now, the only reason that he could have thought that, in my thinking, the only reason that he would have thought that is when he saw Jesus become sin on the cross. Maybe the devil mistook that for Jesus being a sinner. I I don't know what else it would have been if not that. Because it was only at the point, and had to be only at the point where Jesus died spiritually, that the devil would have thought he had any victory over Jesus at all. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
But there came a point where he saw Jesus in such a state or such a form that he thought he had him. Well, three days later, he found out how wrong he was. That's why when Jesus comes back to the earth, he's happy. All this is done. All this is finished. He appears to his disciples and says, all hail. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. You take it in earth, I'll take it in heaven. He knows what he accomplished. Oh, that we would come to know the same thing. Now, what benefit does it provide for us to have God living on the inside of us? What benefit does salvation bring to us? Folks, it brings a power that we haven't acknowledged yet. Add to that what Jesus told his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Like Acts 1.8, for example. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. He's not just talking about the power of salvation. He's talking about the power of the Holy Ghost to do the works that Jesus did on the earth. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And lo, I'm with you always. He's not talking about time there. He's not saying I'll always be with you through time. He's saying I'll be with you no matter where in the earth you go. I was thinking this morning, well, I say I was thinking, it came to my remembrance. I guess it was the Lord reminding me. But after we got um, rented the warehouse behind the uh, Irvine Auto Center on Watney Drive, we did a lot of renovation. We did a lot of work to make it work. And, And for those of you that weren't with us in those days, we had a warehouse or half of a warehouse that we had conditioned for church service purposes. And then we had a, uh, an upstairs. There was a downstairs office group that we put to kids' ministries and um, nursery and all that kind of stuff in. And then the upstairs on the other half of the building was um, church offices. And I was walking around in the church sanctuary, not really with any specific purpose, but I was just walking around and praying. It was during the middle of the week or sometime during the week. And um, I didn't really have anything specific that I was praying about. But I was just walking around and praying. And all of a sudden, I knew that I needed to go next door. Now, the, we didn't have the whole building rented out. We only rented out about two-thirds of it. And so there was a company in the front that had their office uh, had their offices there and there was a little bit of a warehouse that they were using but it wasn't a whole lot they had other corporate offices and stuff like that well there was a company that had just moved in now in order to be able to use the the uh, property for church services and get secured the conditional use permit that we finally got with much difficulty one of the parts of the conditional use permit was parking and so we had to get agreements from some of the neighbors about letting us use parking. They didn't work on the weekend, so it wasn't a problem for most anybody. But when the, uh, the company that we had, the company that used to be in the front half of the building, when they moved their offices and somebody else took hold of it, then we were notified by the city that we would have to get uh, uh, approved parking 
from them, the new business. And there had been something that had happened, and I don't remember the details about it, but there was something that happened. Maybe trash was left on the, uh, in their parking lot or their part of the parking lot or something. I don't know. don't remember exactly. But something happened to where this guy on a Sunday, and, and the, the guy, the owner of the company, or the, the, um, well, whoever he was, the guy that was in charge, he's one of these great big guys, blustery, just obnoxious. And somehow or another, he came to some of the people in our church on a Sunday and started ranting and raving out in the parking lot because people were parked on his side of the building. Well, it's not like there wasn't any parking lot left. And so I really didn't understand, couldn't understand what the deal was, why it was such a problem with him. But I knew I had been notified by the city that we had to replace the, um, the old parking agreement we had with the people that are now gone and get one with this new guy. And I was procrastinating. I didn't want to go. I, 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 I'm not drawn to people like that. I'm not drawn to anybody. But um, especially loud and blustery people. My dad was that way, and I couldn't stand it. And so I make sure to go just as far in the other direction, I guess. I don't know. So anyway, I wasn't looking forward to, to going or having to get this because he had said some pretty unkind things. And um, I don't know what he knew about the procedure. The city wouldn't have notified him about our requirements or anything. But whatever it was, he made it pretty clear that, uh, that he was never going to provide us what we needed or whatever. So I'm walking around the room praying. Empty room, nobody else. I think the only person in the office was the secretary that we had at the time. And um, so all of a sudden, I just knew. I need to go talk to him, and I need to go talk to him now. It wasn't like the Lord said anything, but it was just a matter that I know I need to go. So without walking back upstairs to the other end of the building to my office or saying anything to the secretary about where I was going, I just went out the side door, walked around to the front of the building, let the receptionist know that I was there to see the owner of the company and asked if I could spend a minute or two with him. Well, she wound up ushering me into a room that was full of guys. And this guy was holding court. This loud, blustery guy, he was holding court. There were three or four different people in there with him. I didn't know who anybody was. If they introduced me to anybody, I don't remember. And he had this big smile on his face. It was a, really more of a sneer than a smile, I guess. But he, looking back at it now, I realize he thought he was in the catbird seat. And he said something to the effect of, well, I see my letter got you moving. And I said, what letter? He said, the letter we just delivered to you 30 minutes ago. I said, did you deliver a letter to me? Yeah, we left it with your secretary. But you know this, of course. I said, no, I don't know anything about a letter. And so he kept going on and wouldn't believe that I, I wasn't there as a result of his letter. I said, well, look, we can fix this. I said, let me call my secretary. Let me use your phone, call my secretary, and let her bring the letter over. Well, I did. She did. It's delivered unopened. So he sees and he examines this thing closely. I guess he thought I was in there steaming the <laughs> glue off the letter or something. So he really searched through this thing to make sure that 
it was the way I presented it. And so he says, well, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm here to get the parking agreement. I said, but let me read your letter. It was still sitting right there on his desk after he had examined it. And so I reached over and took hold of it. And he said, no, 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 that's all right. I said, no, I want to read your letter. He said, it's my letter. I said, it's addressed to me. (laughs) So I took the thing, opened it up, and started reading it. And it was the nastiest letter that I had ever gotten up to that point in time. (laughs) I've had some that far surpassed that since. But this was a guy that was in the letter dictating what he would do and what he wouldn't do and all this kind of stuff. And I just read it. I didn't show any emotion. I read it slowly and I read it out loud. And folks, I'm here to tell you, that guy folded up like a cheap suit. He didn't even want to get to the end of the letter. He started asking, now what do you need me to sign? What, what kind of agreement do we need? And, and so forth. And I said, well, I'll get my secretary to type it up, get it ready to go, and we'll bring it over to you. Now I look back on that, and I've had dozens of experiences similar to that. But I look back at that, and the Lord knew exactly when I needed to go talk to this guy. And again, I didn't hear a voice from heaven. It was certainly not a spectacular leading. It was just an inside knowing I need to go talk to him and I need to go now. I didn't think about it. I didn't talk myself out of it. And I could very easily have talked myself out of it. I'd been talking myself out of things before that. But the fact that I was there, the fact that it was the way that I said that it was, that I had not seen the letter, He recognized the supernatural aspect of that. He recognized that God was with us. And I've never seen a guy collapse so quickly in my life. And he did. And I've thought so many times since then, isn't that the way the devil works? He's all mouth telling you and me what he's not going to do or what he's going to do and keep us from doing and how bad things are going to be because of his power. And when we confront him at the leading of the Holy Ghost, he folds up like an old chair. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Being a child of God gives you an unfair advantage in this world. Unfair to the devil. And as I've said before several times already this morning... What in the world could be more important than the leading of the Holy Ghost? What in the world could be more important from God's end than us following the Holy Ghost effectively? Well, we're going to talk about some of these things. We're going to take our time. We're going to turn over every rock, look under every chip, cow chip. (laughs) Yankees. We're going to take our time and we're going to go through and we're going to talk about the leading of the Holy Ghost. 
Because if there's one thing we need to be schooled in, if there's one thing we need to be experienced in, it is the, follow, the leading of the Holy Ghost, following effectively and successfully the leading of the Holy Ghost. Now, I'm sure we've all got stories to tell. I'm sure we've all got experiences. I've got experiences that taught me as much by making the wrong move as I have making the right move. Thank God for his mercy. I know in a bunch of cases, even though I made the wrong move, he bailed me out. Amen. Amen. For as many as are led by the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. Well, we need to be equipped and knowledgeable about how our spirits operate then, don't we? The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Jesus is coming back for a glorious church, folks. That has to be a church that knows the leading of the Spirit of God. It can't be glorious without that. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your word. We thank you even as Jesus said when he was tempted of the devil. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Thank you for your word to guide us, your word to teach us, your word to instruct us. And thank you for the Holy Ghost that gives us direction, divine guidance. And he always leads us into victory. Never defeat, but into the victory of the cross. We thank you, Father. We love you. We thank you that because we've set our love upon you, you will deliver us in every situation. Because we've known your name, you'll set us on high. We bless you, Father. We've committed our lives to you. We've chosen the word of God as our instruction manual. And we thank you for all the blessings and benefits that provides. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Say this after me. Let your heart agree with it. I am a child of God. Therefore, I am led by the Spirit of God. He always leads me into victory. He always shows me the way. Thank you, Father, that we have already been victorious. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come back and be with us tonight if you can.